Splendid. You've begun the good work already. One tablespoonful as required. Reassuring to meet the dear old mumbo jummery. But, Doctor, why not three times a day? Don't you realize, Doctor, that in strict orthodoxy, the tablespoonfuls should pass down the esophagus thrice daily? Sweet spirits of nitre. Wonderful. Won't hurt them, won't help them. Makes them feel they're being treated. They can swill it by the tubful whilst nature makes them well. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week we watched the 10th and final nominee in the 1938 awards, The Citadel. Which, David, you were worried last week that maybe we had played the Bengal answered card too soon because we know that going into 1939, pretty much everything is going to be something worth talking about, even if we hate it. But yeah, your fears were unfounded. Yeah, this was just a boring movie. Yeah, it wasn't offensive. Yeah, for sure. Like, great news, that's not blackface. Those are just coal miners. <laughs> oh, God. That did not even occur to me. But this kind of feels like a good farewell to the, like, shitty 1930s movies we've watched before, starting with, why is this movie called The Citadel? Uh, they make a reference right at the end. Yeah. That's pretty much it. They literally use the word Citadel in the script. (laughs) It's so, like, dropped in, it barely even registers. It feels like they could have said basically any word. I mean, the answer is really because it's based on a novel called The Citadel, and I bet it's set up better in that novel. I certainly hope so. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's a boring, nominally dramatic story about a great man, quote unquote, in a doctrine profession. (laughs) You mean, who is a doctor? Yes, I do, but I also started the sentence a certain way and then was stuck with it. Totally fair. He is in the doctorate profession. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like a more boring Aerosmith, which is saying something. Yeah, it is. It's like a much smaller scale Aerosmith. It suffers for that. And like Aerosmith wasn't a good movie either. It's not like we're praising Aerosmith by proxy here. It's the story of a Scottish guy who is a doctor. He goes to a Welsh mining town to become the apprentice to this other doctor who is bedridden and literally does nothing. So basically, he's the doctor. His wife is not Dr. Manson, who is our doctor. The wife of the other doctor he's supposedly the apprentice to gets mad and thinks that he's stealing because some patient gave him like a bonus for literally saving their child from death. So he quits. And also threatens to sue her in one of many weird, (laughs) kind of uncomfortable, privilegey things this guy does even before he's supposed to be corrupted by wealth. There's another thing that happens right before he quits, where he and this other doctor, Dr. Denny, who is very smart, but also an alcoholic, suggests that they blow up the sewer system because there is a typhoid epidemic and people keep drinking from this bad sewer. So the solution is to blow it up so the city or whatever government 
has to replace it. Over the course of the movie, I came to also feel this way about Robert Donat, our lead's performance. But this was a feeling I don't get very often in film because my acting days were like high school. But when I get it, I get it very acutely. And the other doctor slash chemist guy slash alcoholic dude gave me a real like, I could have done this better. You're fucking up this part, man. This is a John Hodgman part. You're supposed to never know when this guy is serious or not. Yeah, his moment at the end of the film where he gets like super drunk after not drinking for a few years was the worst drunk acting I have ever seen on film. Yes. Like ever. And it's such a great part. It is a great part. He has the best lines in the whole movie. Any part that ends with like, I've thought about it and there's one solution. We have to blow up the sewer. It's like, okay. That part is kind of honestly the most fun part of the movie is him being this small town doctor and like figuring out how things work in the real world rather than medical school, doing some real doctoring and going beyond what people think are ethical standards to blow up a municipal sewer so that they stop giving the entire town tuberculosis. No, typhoid. The tuberculosis was a different thing. Oh, you're right. Typhoid. Right. That's later. That's our act two disease. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) While being a small town doctor, Dr. Manson, I guess just Andrew... Because I feel really weird calling anyone Dr. Manson. Andrew meets this pretty school teacher named Christine. And they get in a fight at their first meeting because she told this mother to go ahead and send her kid who has the measles to school. Because the mom like doesn't have the capacity to take care of the kid all day long. And Andrew is like, but he should be quarantined. And she's like, well, I put him at the back of the class. And then the next time that you see them together, he's like, I need a wife for this new job because they don't want to give it to a single man because the house that comes with it is too big. So will you marry me? And she's like, yeah. Cool. Well, there's one scene in between, but it doesn't really help matters. She goes to him because she has like a sore throat. Right, right, right. And he examines her and then is like, hey, I just noticed you're Rosalind Russell. Should we fuck even though our first scene was just how much we hate each other? (laughs) Yeah, that is about what happens there. And then sort of like tells her nothing is wrong with her. Yeah. But fine, that apparently wasn't a problem, because she then decides to marry him on the third meeting. They get married, and for, as far as I can tell, have, like, actually a really good marriage there for a short time. Like, she's really supportive of his work. He wants to do this research into black lung disease, because a bunch of the miners have it. And he's like, oh, but they won't give me any money for it. And she's like, well, you always told me, and apparently always was never on screen, that all a good scientist needs for research is his own brain and a microscope or something like that. Yeah. And here is your microscope. And like, that is a remarkable scene because it is just like the guy playing the chemist who has the best written part in the movie does a just shit job. Rosalind Russell has the absolute worst written character in the movie and does the best acting in the film. Oh, she's great. I totally buy that off screen something occurred to make any of this stuff happen because she is totally selling it to me that they have like 
some kind of bond, even though we didn't see the building of it at all. Right. That's the thing, is just every time you see her, apparently something new has happened off screen, because there's no consistency to her character whatsoever, and the movie does not care to fill you in. So she is the one who has to, like, do all of that work, and she's actually doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah, she does a great job. He's doing this research, which is apparently a major problem for totally unknown reasons. And then they're like, we're going to fire you. And also, we're going to break in and steal all your guinea pigs and then kill them. Yeah, it is, I think, implied that the union leaders have it too good and don't want to, like, rock the boat the way that, like, his tuberculosis research would do but then the movie doesn't want to like make that argument because who boy that's a that's wild but like the movie plays it as like what's this witchcraft microscopes (laughs) medical research Mm, burn him at the stake but like it also keeps kind of hinting at like it would actually be monetarily really bad for this mining company To find out that, like, there is a health risk to inhaling all this silica, so the powers that be will stop you. But the powers that be seem like superstitious miners, because they don't want to actually say anything about power in this movie. No, boy, they do not. So, uh, that happens... And then he just moves to London with Christine because I guess he just gave up. Which he does a lot. Yeah, wow. This guy- Basically everything that happens- He fails upwards so much. When he finds out he can't use the super expensive equipment at the hospital without the permission of his boss, he's going to quit his super great job that pays him a shit ton of money and gives him a free house. And his wife has to be like, You know, one time you told me that you don't need to do that. Like, what's great about that scene is I can totally believe she's making that up on the spot. (laughs) And he's like, oh, that sounds like me. I am a genius. Yeah. She's like, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, was definitely a thing you said. Anyway, don't quit your job. Now it's been a year and they're in London and he's poor enough he has to sell the microscoped gift that his drunk friend gave him. And he's resorted to piercing women's ears because there aren't enough sick people in London. <laughs> Which is, I I think, again, a thing where the movie is trying to imply something slightly smarter than that. But the actual directly stated thing is just like, yeah, there just aren't enough clients. Yeah. Then is it the same woman that has the panic attack that he pierced the ears of? Or is that just like another blonde lady? Uh, I, you know, I don't know they looked to me to be the exact same person same but then it was like why does she know the italian restaurant owner i have no idea i mean i guess they just like picked not the same actor but very similar looking actors or maybe it's the same person who knows yeah but it's toppy Leroy is the name (sighs) of this person yeah And he goes to see Toppy because her regular doctor won't deal with her anymore. And he gives the medically mandated treatment for a woman with a panic attack, which is to slap her a whole bunch and tell her she's being hysterical. Which apparently gets her super hot. Yeah, God, she's so horny for him for the entire rest of the fucking movie. Yeah. In the elevator, he meets his other best friend who we've never fucking seen before, (laughs) who's... 
Rex Harrison, and Rex Harrison leads him to a fancy private hospital for rich people that's bilking rich people for all that they're worth, but that's bad in this movie, so keep that in mind. I also want to point out that when Rex Harrison showed up, because we'd never seen him or heard of him before, I was like, oh cool, like the fun drunk guy is back. And then I was like, wait a minute, this guy's not fun or drunk anymore. And then Denny, the fun drunk guy, shows up, and I'm like, but you've been hanging out- Oh, you're not the same guy at all. Yeah. Okay. It's, well, it's because it makes no sense for there to be this extraneous character. No. And because everybody just is doing bleh. <laughs> That's a really good review of the acting in this movie, aside from I, yeah. Rosalind Russell. The one thing that makes me kind of regret not playing the bingo answer card on this is just... I do get so exhausted at the thought of talking about this movie. I have a lot of things to talk about after we're done talking about this movie. But then we're into the, like, crux of the movie, I guess, question mark, where he's been corrupted by these, like, rich doctors that don't care about doing real medicine. And instead, they golf and bilk rich people for their money and buy their wives furs yeah and a guy comes in and is like hey i read your paper that you apparently put out anyway even though you were supposed to not be able to put that paper out because they killed all your guinea pigs and i thought it was a really good paper i've learned how to collapse people's lungs in a cool new way you should come to the private hospital i'm setting up and he's like nope this is the third of three times i shall deny jesus <laughs> I have gotten myself a pencil mustache and a hot blonde not mistress because this movie won't actually say that I'm cheating on my wife and I will never speak to you again. Good day, sir. Yes. And also, I now have a posh English accent, even though I was Scottish at the beginning of the film. But that's how we know that he's really just turned his back on everything that he is is that he now has this, like, incredibly upper-crust accent. Yeah. And the pencil-thin mustache. Then he goes to a dinner party with the blonde lady and leaves Rosalind Russell at home alone, and she sees him in the society pages. Then Denny, the drunk pharmacist that I should have played, comes back, <laughs> and he's like, hey, remember the good times when... We were all good people and you didn't have a weird pencil thin mustache and you cared about doctoring. And he's like, not really. Um, I remember what foods I like at this Italian restaurant and literally don't care about. God, that scene is so wild. This earlier scene where they're like, there's the neighborhood Italian restaurant that they're on really good terms with when they're poor but happy. And he comes back there and the mom's like, oh, you know, my daughter, she's not so good. She doesn't dance anymore. She has a terrible lung disease. You know, your specialization, she's in the hospital and dying. And she said, he's far too busy. He'll never come see me. But I thought maybe you would. And he's like, you know what my favorite kind of pasta sauce is? Which is <laughs> such a like not even human reaction. No, he is made out to be this incredible caricature of the evil rich dude. I mean, don't get me wrong. We live in a time where caricatures of evil rich dudes actually exist and are, you know, running the country. But 
In the context of a film, it's ridiculous that anyone would have that response. Well, yes, evil rich dudes in the real world do ignore the plight of poor people, but they do it through bureaucracy. They go like, oh, you'll have to call my secretary. I'm so, I'm so busy this week. I'm just so packed. And I'll see what I can do, though. Yeah, or I don't have admitting privileges at that hospital, so I just can't. Anyway, clam sauce would be great. Right. And and instead, he's like, ah, dying, eh? Oh, you know what I've always loved is olives. And it's like, <laughs> what? Yep. Anyway, Denny has the idea for socialized healthcare and would like for... Andrew to go in on that with him, and Andrew's like, I just bought a sports car, dude. Fuck off. Yeah. And Denny gets so distressed by this, he goes out drinking and tells Andrew off extremely ineffectively, and then... I guess wanders out into the street or isn't looking where he's he's hit by a car. Which is apparently 1938's favorite way to create pathos in our lead character. And so Andrew's like, take him to my hospital because I'm a doctor and he's my best friend. And then the like wealthy surgeon that you've seen in one scene before golfing fucks up the surgery because he's a bad doctor that never has to do anything. And this reawakens what is important about doctoring, which is not fucking murdering people (laughs) in Dr. Andrew. (laughs) And he goes and saves the little girl's life with the experimental lung collapse procedure and then gets in trouble with the medical board. This sounds like it's going extremely quickly, but it does in the movie. Oh, yeah. It's like, I'm not skipping scenes here. It really is just like, scene where he gets hit by a car, scene where he dies on the hospital bed, scene where he tells off the surgeon, scene where he goes and visits the little girl in the hospital, scene where he does the experimental medical procedure on the little girl, scene where he's getting chewed out by the medical board for doing the experimental procedure and he gives a big speech about how the medical board is too cloistered up and should awaken itself to ideas from outside of the profession. And you're like, is that what this movie is about? And then the (laughs) film ends. Yeah. Well, and not just outside of the profession, but he has this big speech that invokes Louis Pasteur and they're like, Oh, will you use this guy's, lung collapsing technique but he's not a registered doctor and he's like was louis pasteur a quack well he wasn't a registered doctor either but according to you he would have been a quack and i was like oh god they really are trying to go full paul mooney speech on this but it ends like they walk out of the courtroom and it's credits he definitely has his medical license taken away right like, like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. My impression when you end that scene there is just like, okay, so now he and Rosalind Russell go off and that didn't solve anything. Yeah, like they weren't <laughs> even dismissed. It was just like, I did my speech. And then like, at least metaphorically flips a table and walks out. Yeah, God. It's not amazing. Like, it has a very, very heavy-handed message that it doesn't tell well. No, I honestly think the script is... eh, Well, I don't know. The script is better than about half the performances, and the script isn't that great. No. But I did not like our lead very much. I did not like our lead's best friend. I did like Rosalind Russell, but that's one third of the major characters in this movie. 
there's just a lot of like very broad Scottish stuff going on in the first third of the film. Yeah, and Welsh. Like, oh, look, they're Welsh. They have Welsh accents. It's funny. And I'm like, okay, I guess. Yeah. I think of everything that we've watched for this year. It's just forgettable. It's not offensive. It's not infuriating. It didn't super disappoint me the way that you can't take it with you did. It's just like, yeah, well, that was a movie. I mean, that it's like absolutely the pinnacle of our catchphrase. Like, it, it was a movie. That's what I can say for it. It actually kind of inspired a new segment I want to start doing as we're sort of starting to close out a second year and have watched a lot of movies, which is, Susan, what even was this movie? Um, A.K.A. Academy Flashcards, where I name a movie we've watched and you try and tell me as quickly as you can, like something that would tell me you remember this movie at all. Uh, for this movie? No, not for this one, because I think you're going to remember this one. So what I was actually doing was, Susan, can you tell me front page? Uh, front page was the movie that had the mom's suicide in it? Nope, that was five star final. God damn it. Front page was the one where they kept the anarchist in a desk. Yes, correct. Okay, I knew it was one of the two. Yes. Throw out any other one. Uh, okay, uh, Dodsworth. Uh, Guy is really shitty to his wife because she won't let him be a workaholic and renege on all of the promises he made to her when they were married, and so he marries a different woman. Yeah, that that about sums it up. (laughs) That's Dodsworth for you. It's my turn. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She done him wrong. Uh, that's, uh, d- uh, what's her name? Um, I, I'm, I have a perfect picture of her in my head. Come up and see me sometime. But I can't remember her name. Um, where... May West. May West, where I cannot figure out who, who she done wrong for the entire film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a series of bad musical numbers that I guess has a plot tying it together question mark um and then at the end she ends up with the priest who turns out to secretly be a cop who's not so secretly was just like hot the whole movie so that's why she ends up with him damn it okay you definitely got that one the informer no see i remember the informer because i hate it so much oh, okay then that, that, that one doesn't work uh naughty marietta Naughty Marietta was one I was literally going to give to you because I was like, I I broadly remember, like, I've told you the bit before where in the Brian North Choose Your Own Adventure version of Hamlet, you can just do the plot of Hamlet. And the part in Hamlet that is related by the characters but doesn't happen on stage where they are attacked by pirates is just Hamlet talking at length about how God, if anybody ever makes a play of my life, definitely include this rad part where I fight pirates. <laughs> yes, you have told me that before. That's how I feel about Naughty Marietta, where like I was so psyched by the Wikipedia page because it said, then they get kidnapped by pirates, and then you get to the movie, and that's like three minutes, and it's fucking done. Like, there's so little of that movie that has anything to do with pirates. I think three minutes is overly generous. Yeah. But she's like a European princess and doesn't like who she's being married off to and ends up in New Orleans and falls in love with Davy Crockett, even though he's a piece of shit. (laughs) I don't think it's actually Davy 
Crockett, though. No, but he's wearing the hat. Oh, yeah. So legally, he's still Davy Crockett. <laughs> Fair enough. And then there, God, what's what's the song they build up to for that entire movie? Because it's like the best part of that movie. And I honestly can't remember what song it is. I don't remember either. Yeah. So should we rate The Citadel? Should we? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, I don't... Mm, four, three. Four, oh, wow. Yeah. All right. I'll go with you on a three. I mean, just three for it just being like really amateurish. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it. We're too late in movie history at this point to make a movie that's this just utterly forgettable. Y- you're right. It's like baby's first Oscar melodrama. Yeah, exactly. And we've already had those. <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, I think three is fair. Should we talk about what won this year and what should have won this year? Absolutely, because this is the part of this episode I have been really psyched about. So the winner was You Can't Take It With You. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. (laughs) Also, this is such a weird year. In the sense of like, listen, there's an obvious winner and it's Grand Illusion. Like, just come on. Absolutely no question. It is head and shoulders above everything else. It is beyond, honestly, on several levels, any movie we have watched for this project. Yeah. But also, like, the Academy is still doing blackface in, like, three of these pictures, so they're not going to pick a foreign film. And if you're not going to pick a foreign film, then this is a weird-ass year in cinema. Yeah, that's a good point, because, I mean, first of all, two of the other movies are actually British movies. The Citadel and Pygmalion were both made in England, but they were financed by MGM, so, like, I guess... Since Best Picture goes to the producer. And it's, like, not a foreign language film. Right. I get what you're saying, and, like, honestly, that probably did have kind of an effect, but I think it is more... I could make a case, if Grand Illusion isn't on this list, I could make a case for Adventures of Robin Hood. See, that's my backup, because I feel like even though it's a silly film, it has a lot of stuff that qualifies something for a Best Picture. Yeah. It's in color. (laughs) It is closer to the future of cinema than anything else else this year i mean other than grand delusion but yeah right yes it's in color the fight scenes are an era leap ahead of the last errol flynn movie that we watched or at least the last one with fight scenes yeah i mean i think that would probably be my backup even though like in a number of ways it feels like a small town theater production yeah and like i feel the same small town theater production way about boys town of like there's good performances in there but it's also like a weird movie pygmalion and test pilot are both sort of interesting failures alexander's ragtime band and four daughters are uninteresting failures (laughs) (laughs) jezebel we shall not speak of right I feel like there's also an argument to be made for Test Pilot based just on the fact that they somehow made that movie work. Yeah. It was actually not an interesting failure. It was an interesting flirtation with failure that somehow pulled it off in the end. Yes, it is one of those things where it's like, by rights, like if I'm writing down the formula for this movie, I cannot figure out why it was successful at all. I still don't think it's quite best picture successful, but like why it isn't an utter goddamn shambling disaster is a real mystery to me to this day. I mean, I feel like possibly the whole reason for its nomination was, holy shit, how did they make that garbage work? Yeah. And honestly, more movies should be nominated for that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
none of this makes sense on paper, and yet, and none of this makes sense for, like, an hour of the movie, and then somehow I'm, like, deeply invested emotionally in all of these characters in a way that I absolutely cannot explain. And in that way, it does have it over Adventures of Robin Hood, but they're just not comparable, which I think, like, I got at the heart of the problem of Best Picture in general. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I, yes, I mean- this is kind of what I meant by it's a weird year is it's a real apples to oranges year where it's not like there's three domestic dramas that all have broadly similar plots, but different key performances or something. It's like, do you want the swashbuckling action hero? Little women, but now. Uh, and, and you know what there's not in this year, which I'm actually really happy about is that there is no piece that is the big message movie because of all things that absolutely do not stand the screen test of time those don't like story of louis pasteur life of emile zola any of those that try to be about the big i don't even want to say like necessarily political topics of the day but just like socio-political things They feel extremely dated in retrospect. I would say, like, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang is probably the only one that really doesn't feel that way that we've watched. Or, like, any of the anti-war movies. I mean, I'd say, I think this is why you can't take it with you, one. It is the worst Frank Capra message movie, because usually when Frank Capra does a message movie, there's, like, other shit going on, and it's kind of interesting. And it, like, explores stuff around that instead of relying on one guy reading a newspaper article for ten straight minutes. My god. (laughs) It feels like Frank Capra got dumb enough for the Academy this year. Wow. Yeah, no, but, but yeah. (laughs) That it was so beat you over the head, a message movie that like, what else is the message movie slot? Like the Citadel? Like, where where we're just like, remember the Louis Pasteur movie from three years ago? (laughs) I mean, kind of, that's the message of the Citadel. (laughs) Go see the Paul Moody movie so that we can keep making money off of it. Yeah, because, like, the Citadel, I guess, has a message, but it's too small in its scope. Yeah. It's too personal to that one doctor, because that one doctor is not, like, a real person. (laughs) No, and they specifically go out of their way to be like, we would never disparage the, like, profession of medicine in general. Then that's entirely what the movie is about. Right. Uh, But only because the other option is indicting our lead. (laughs) Because we're not going to do that, we instead end up going like, you know who sucks? Doctors. You all are garbage. End of film. Which, you know, hot take, but not sure that it's the best take. Oh, shit. You know what we forgot to talk about? The part where God intervenes on this earthly plane to save this dumb shit doctor. I don't even remember that part. He's going to jump off a bridge and then a voice from nowhere. Like, it isn't like, and then he turns around and it's like his old friend Bob or something. It's just like the voice of God tells him, like, you're part of a grander profession. You can't take all the harms of doctoring on yourself. And it's like, why the fuck not? Yeah. This is his fault for sure. After also, like, doing the apparently 1938 classic walk dejectedly through the streets and have people run into you thing. God, I wanted to get out my green screen because it was just, (laughs) that scene is so fun. The dejected suicide walk scene, you know that one? Yeah, so fun. 
<laughs> but seriously, it is genuinely like he's so clearly shuffling in place on a soundstage. Oh, yeah. It's adorable. Yeah, actually, the one in Boys Town is better than this one, and it was also terrible. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, because they at least had him actually have, like, people to knock into. And he was actually walking through a full set instead of just, like, treadmilling it up in place. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the obvious winner here is Grand Illusion. Yeah, go see it. It's great. Yeah, and you can't take it with you. Put it in the garbage. Yes, don't take it with you. (laughs) You can't, so. So, problem solved, actually. (laughs) But, yeah, speaking of great films, we're finally to 1939. Woohoo! And we're going to start with that famed and celebrated film that everyone knows, Stagecoach. Yep. 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 So, you know, there's that. Oh, well, it's John Wayne in his breakthrough role. So I probably some people do know it. Yeah. Wasn't there like a TV series? Or is it just that it inspires every 50s Western? I mean... I thought there was an actual 50s Western TV series called Stagecoach that was based on it. But maybe I'm just conflating the fact that every single 1950s Western TV show was trying to be stagecoach. I have no idea, but I bet we will find out next week. Yeah. And until then, 1938's over. Yeah, we're free. We're free. (laughs) Of 38. Yes, we're free. We're free of 1938. I should have specified. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Yes, thank you. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, I I want to apologize about that day in school. I was rude to you. You were quite right about the milk, I mean. The kids do need it. I'm awfully sorry. Oh, that's all right. I'm afraid I was a bit officious myself. Not very helpful. I'm awfully sorry. It's quite all right. Goodbye. Goodbye.